Welcome everyone to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And Allison, we've we've entered a brand new decade. I mean, it feels fresh. It feels free. I'm getting out my shoulder pads. Like, how are you feeling? Meet Courtney. We're here. We're meeting Courtney Moore, who is born the year of the bicentennial. So she is actually a February baby. So she's born like the summer before Julie takes part in the bicentennial stuff. And she's very fun. Extremely fun. I love this book so much. It is a bit um, terrifying when you feel like you recognize elements of a his air quotes historic girl's life. Yes. And we can get into that. So, I mean, that's this is one of the first books where I'm like really feeling that. Like with Julie, <laughs> I could sort of relate, even though I never lived in the 70s. But I mean, talk about it. We're in 1986, the year I was born. Like, that's a lot. Lots going on here. But, you know, before we get into Meet Courtney, who to this day has the greatest theme music of any American girl, I'm sorry, she does. What are we taking in? What's like taking up your time these days? Well, I wanted to first recommend a book that a lot of people who listen to this show said that we would absolutely love. And I know that they were right, at least in my case, which is a Council of Dolls. And so that is a book that came out last year. And I really, really, really recommend it if you're someone who's ever had a relationship with a doll. It's about multiple generations of indigenous women and their connections to dolls that they care for and kind of the back and forth relationships that they cultivate. And Mm. I was so worried that I might not like it. I kind of put off reading it and I just absolutely adored it. So like 10 out of 10 people should check it out. Awesome. Yeah, that's on my to read list. It's been on it for a while, but I need to clearly move it to the top. I just finished a book that I want to recommend. I loved it called The Art Thief by Michael Finkel. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but Mm. it's about the person who is considered like the most prolific and successful art thief in history. And he isn't caught. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's true. We don't know that person. The (laughs) most successful person is out there. This guy was caught tragically. So maybe he's not the most successful, but he ends up stealing like untold amounts of paintings, sculptures, silverwork, like all kinds of stuff, and then basically hides it in his mom's attic where he lives. Interestingly, he's not caught for a long time because he's never he never tried to sell anything he stole. He literally was like, I'm addicted to beauty and I want to be surrounded by beautiful things. And why should that only be a, the purview of rich people or museums? So it's like actually really interesting. But this guy follows him for a number of years and gets an interview with him directly. So It's just like, I'm fascinated by what makes people like that tick. And it's just a really interesting story. Like he does it with his girlfriend, like he's living in his mom's house. Like there's just like a lot going on with that. And it's just sort of like surreal. It keeps building and it's just, it's really interesting. So if you're into that kind of thing, I'll watch like any art heist movie. I'll read any book about it. I don't know why, but yeah, that's where I'm at. I I will say I get that. I understand that instinct to see something really precious and to just want to have it for yourself, which is why I have to sometimes limit my exposure to antique shops because I just want to take things home. I want them to be mine. 
I don't I don't feel that way in archives where I'm like, okay, this is where it's supposed to be. Except for right. the rare times where I think, well, but it would be, you know, nice at my house. But wow. I understand. I understand. I get nervous about things like that because I get really in my head about like I couldn't maintain it in the way that it deserves to be maintained. And mainly that's because I took a class in college for my science requirement called art and chemistry about art restoration, which was way heavier on the chemistry than the art. Should have thought about that. But anyway, (laughs) it was really interesting. But just like the work that goes into maintaining these objects and these paintings i mean it's crazy but like he hates he hates the people who robbed isabella stewart gardner because they cut the canvas to pull it out of the frame and he was like that was wrong they disrespected the painting so he's like initially obsessed with like maintaining a provenance record of course with him as like the last entry and you know trying to maintain the objects in the way they deserve to be maintained doing these like patchwork jobs that are terrifying but Yeah, I mean, I think his central point is a really seductive one, which is like, at one point he's like, why don't we have couches in museums where you can lay on the couch and look at a painting and have a snack while you're staring at it? Like, why is it just uncomfortable benches and, you know, exclusive spaces? And it's like, there is something to that. (laughs) But, you know, then to take it to a place of like, and I'm going to take it home with me so I can have it on my nightstand. I don't know, perhaps too far. The snack prohibition, I think, is a useful one. I mean, for me, it would be. I was with my nephews over the weekend or my cousin's son, and he we were doing this thing where, like, you can make cards that you send. I'll have to find the charity's name, but you send it in, and they dispense them to kids in hospitals. So there's rules about what you can and can't do. And needless to say, the rules were, like, very few, but sort of, like, don't say things like get better soon or like feel better like just make it positive like you're amazing like to a special friend so we're explaining this to him he's like seven and he had a ton of brownies while he was doing this and like literally brownies were all over the card the first card and he was like we're done i did it and we were like um (laughs) your art is beautiful but it is covered in brownie so gonna have to redo that but so i mean he wouldn't do well i mean yeah it's kind of a scratch and sniff if you will speaking of 80s technology But, you know, we've both had our lives overrun by something else in pop culture. And that's the opposite of something that you love so much you need to take it home. Like, this is something that we both are, like, spiraling about, but it is taking over our lives slightly. And that is Love is Blind. You know, I let Nick Lachey back in. We all probably should have just shut the door. Here's the Mm -hmm. thing about kind of where we are with reality TV. We know that people are doing this for a multitude of reasons, one of which might be to find a romantic partner. At least be better at your own deception. Like this season is shocking for the way that people leapt out of long-term relationships or actually cheated on people to be part of this. And the truth is, to me, what's really surprising, you don't even have a good chance of ending up on TV. Most of the people who do this don't even get a follow up. They don't make the show. Yeah, they don't make that it. I think is stunning. It's we're living in a very weird time of reality TV where it's like some people are in so deep that they don't understand how to live among normies anymore. Like the Tom Sandoval like piece that came out where he at one point compares his own villainization to like what happened to George Floyd or OJ Simpson, which is like insane. I'm not even going there. But basically every room he goes in, the reporter's like he's constantly like adjusting to the lighting and looking for his own camera angles, even when he's just being followed by a reporter. Like he doesn't know how to have interactions with people. 
And yet you have these other people who are new to it, who are like dying to get into it, who are like, couldn't be messier. Like they have the chance to kind of prepare themselves. And like you're saying, like a lot of the people who came on the show, like had fiancés at home, apparently. And just to that point that you were just saying, talking about like Vanderpump people, I want to recommend a book that I'm very surprised I haven't seen more people buzzing about, which is a modern day retelling of Pride and Prejudice set in an influencer family house, very much kind of loosely based on the D'Amelios or the Kardashians. It's called Meet the Benedettos, and I absolutely loved it. It was a really, really interesting thing about fame, sort of Mm. like what would happen like what might the D'Amelios be like in five years, basically, if they yeah. you know had come of age slightly differently. But to your point, right, this kind of idea of people know that they're on camera, they know that they're being filmed, but the stakes are not high enough to leave your entire life. I, I think that's why I'm kind of baffled by these people. If you know you're going to be the bachelor or the bachelorette and be set for some number of years, I think maybe it's worth it. But this is a pretty a pretty low chance of actually becoming famous. Very low, because at this point we're on like what season three or four of the U.S. version of this show, and if you've not seen it, it's literally like people get together in like dorms separated by sex, and then they come into a pod room where they see before them a wall, and on the other side of the wall is the person they've been matched with. So it's like truly they can't see each other. They're having these dates. And then the man is supposed to propose to someone at some point. We follow them to a resort, then back to their air quotes, normal lives, where they have to like decide if they want to get married in like five weeks total. So it's insane. The timeline's insane. But like it adds something really crazy to it that one like I was saying to you off air, I feel like they must have had to sign NDAs, but everyone's on TikTok as the show is still being rolled out to be like, well, the producers shot me in this light. Like, that's not really what happened. They edited it to look this way. And I'm sure that's happening. But it's just weird that there's a lack of self-awareness about like, of course, it's going to come out if you had a fiance going into filming like that is going to come out. And it's just wild that they just don't think it will or I don't know what I mean, is that just their ego? I think Nikki and Isabel might be candidates for reality TV, but I think Courtney would know better. I hope Courtney would know better. I mean, I feel like she is so good at gaming out situations and thinking about things in those terms. And I would hope that she would she'd either be the best person on Love is Blind because strategically she would see like the moves she needed to make to be successful on that show, whatever that even means. But I would hope she would be better off than that. I think her living situation at home is harrowing enough where she would never choose to have cameras following her living in a bunk bed again. I think that's 100% true. And she's also seen through the manipulations of the media by calling out a morning TV show team for misogyny. So I think she would have no problem standing up to the producers, the director. I think she wouldn't even get involved to begin with. She would just be like, yeah, I'm out. No, maybe one of the twins. We'll have to find out. But we'll find out. We're in Courtney land. Do we want to get into Courtney land? I'm ready. We're, we're covering the first Courtney book, which is called Courtney 1986 Changes the Game. Should I do kind of a quick like background little recap? Sure. So this book came out since we've been making the show. So it's one of the newer ones. And we get the tagline, Courtney is the best gamer at the arcade, but she can't understand why there aren't more girl characters. 
When Courtney imagines her own video game, the hero is a girl who knows how to handle any situation. If only I were like that in real life, Courtney wishes. Her dad's moving for a job, so Courtney won't be living with him on weekends anymore. That's causing a big problem with her stepsister, who doesn't like sharing a room with Courtney or her guinea pig. When her mom announces that she's running for mayor, Courtney's blended family has to learn to work together differently. It's a whole new game for Courtney, and she's figuring out the rules as she goes. Dun, dun, dun. No mention of the challenger. I think that the entire, and I get it because I think it probably sold more dolls. I think the entire PR campaign for Courtney was a bait and switch. We opened this book with Courtney playing Pac-Man, which was only about six years old when this book is set, which is very early 1986. Most of this book is not about her being a gamer at all. Not at all. Every time you said 1986, I was just hearing the song where it's like, Courtney, 1986. Da, 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 da. That has like, that has melted my brain. Like, it's so deep in there. I agree with you. Like, it's on the cover. First, before we get into the book, we both noticed something. Now, we we're on the record. Like, we are very pro-Courtney. We love this book. The one thing that took us out of it, that freaked us out, and I would love more information about this, listeners, and especially of this cover model. Courtney, if you're out there, putting that in scare quotes, contact us. We have like beautiful end papers in this book that show us the different levels of them all. We have beautiful portraits of all the main characters, which we'll get into. But on the cover, we have what looks like a photo, but it's not. It's like uncanny. And there are images of this style throughout the book. And it's like I said to you, like this is an AI generated photograph. Like, is this a real human being? I think this model is a real person. And I think there's something about the way that they tried to create an effect through some kind of airbrushing or manipulation of the photographs. I almost would have been down for this book to feature like the Courtney doll in these scenes. For yeah. some reason, we have strayed very, very far from the world of the Renee Graff illustrated books. I'm not even, I don't even have a problem with photographs. I kept staring at these to figure out what was Uncanny Valley about them. And I think they're just edited too much to look like she is in a computer game. Yeah, I think they're like airbrushed within an inch of its life. And we have like on the cover the classic, you know, rug you would see in an arcade or a bowling alley where it hides like many spills. And it's like dark swirly and there's like neon lights in the background of this arcade. Like there's a lot going on where you're like, well, maybe the neon lights and the glow in the dark carpet, like that's what's making the lighting look weird. But I think it's like to your point, this has been photoshopped to an insane degree. And I just want to say, if this model is out here, are you safe? Because, and if not, who is this? Who is this? And also, who is playing Tina? Tina is her older sister. I want you to flip to page 30. Tina and Courtney have a conflict over the situation of Parsley. And Parsley is the guinea pig that belongs to Courtney who previously has been residing full-time at dad's. And we'll talk about why she has to relocate. I'm going to be real. I'm on Tina's side in this conflict. Me too. But they're sharing really that is close not okay. quarters. This photograph really threw me off because number one, why does Tina have a picture of herself next to her bed? Everything about it is extremely Wait, isn't that strange. her mom? In her room. This is primarily Tina's room. And Courtney is very much treated as a guest. It's like ripping a page out of a magazine. 
there might be something meta happening here, but it scared me. Well, isn't the photo of her mom on the bottom bunk on the wall? That's the mom? Yeah. Remember oh. it says like she has a picture of her mom taped on the wall. Okay, I think that's her bunk. not convincing enough. It looks like okay, Tina. Okay, that's fine. It's very hard to see. It does look like Tina. And I want to say, look at the eye contact between these two. It doesn't exactly line up to the point where you're like, oh, so this was 100% Photoshop. Like, these two were not in the same space when these photos were taken. I feel disrespected, Allison. Like, I'm sorry, we can't get these models in the same room. We can't so, bring them both to set and have them both embody the characters so we can take a photo. Where is Sydney? Get her in here. I, it does say directly opposite where the caboodle is in the photograph that the photo of the mom is taped to the wall. But I literally thought, nonetheless, that this was a picture of Tina. It's like so tiny. You could think it was Tina. And we okay. do get descriptions of Tina that she looks a lot like the mom. So I think you're totally on point there. I also want to say that we have like, I mean, Courtney does come off in this photograph like roommate from hell. Like she's <laughs> yeah. cradling a guinea pig and brushing it with a human hairbrush, which could be Tina's. <laughs> It's definitely We're see Tina's. It's definitely Tina's. Like, I'm sorry. If I walked into my room and my sister is like brushing her guinea pig with my hairbrush, I'd be calling emergency services on myself. I'd be like, get me out of here. Take me out. But it's also, again, this is where I'm back to my AI theory. I think they wrote for this one. Let's have two girls fighting in a bedroom. Allison's dying. Fighting in a bedroom. Put 80s stuff in here. In the 80s. Make it 80s. And they're like, okay, got it. We threw a caboodle on the floor. There's a Rubik's Cube next to the beanbag. For... It's never referenced. We never no. address the Rubik's Cube. There's like a weird pile of crap. There's like plate paper plates of food, which if you re recognize from the story, we learned mom is an environmental activist and she won't allow paper plates in the house. I'm Correct. sorry. The bot doesn't know that. The bot didn't read this book. And then the boombox is great. I'm sorry. I'm there's like cheese puffs coming out on the carpet. Courtney is like so disrespecting those cheese puffs. There was no reason that they had to come out of the bowl like that. I can smell this room from here and it's <laughs> so upsetting. That's all I can say right now. Tina is four years older than Courtney, which means she's 13 to 14 because Courtney has not yet had her 10th birthday. So she is not yet 10 years old, but we know that they have a four-year age gap. I think Tina is not fully in the wrong. I think there are times where she makes mean comments about Courtney and we'll get to that. But we learn of a crime being committed very early in the book, which is that Courtney is trying to finish her game of Pac-Man and she is playing with Kip. And Tina is trying to get her to go because they're on the timeline and we learn that Courtney has done something egregious. Tina zooms in on Courtney's hair. Is that my scrunchie? She says accusingly, mm -hmm. eyeing the bright pink band on top of Courtney's head. I couldn't find mine this morning. This was in the bathroom. And then she goes back to playing her game. I just got that scrunchie for Christmas. Give it back. I've had this exact conversation with my sister. What side of it were you on? I'm the youngest child. I was always right. the scrunchie thief. Always. Well, I think it, to get into Courtney's headspace for a moment, if you will, having seen the photo that we just described on page 30, this is a girl who thinks it's cool to use Tina's hairbrush to brush her guinea pig, or she will. So, I mean, she's probably like, look, the scrunchies lying around, you have more than one. I'm not seeing a problem here. This is also part of what I found really striking is we enter... Courtney's life where she's in a new kind of public space. She's at a mall. She's at an arcade. And there's something I think really clever that this author does, which is we have Tina and Courtney 
leave the arcade. And one of the first conversations that we have that's kind of like giving us a sense of their relationship is they're pulling away like Tina is pulling Courtney through the mall. Courtney swallowed her frustration. Officially, she and Tina were at the mall together. What that really meant was that Courtney hung out at the arcade while Tina prowled the mall and drank soda at the food court with her friends. And this is such a different sibling and kind of like public sphere relationship than we've seen in any other book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is stunning to me that in Julie's books and in this one, Courtney is allowed to have so much freedom in these spaces. And I, excuse me, I think the mall like really opens up a space for the parents to say, oh, well, Tina is watching Courtney or like they're together in the mall. But really what the mall lets you do is like divide and just kind of do a choose your own adventure journey. And that's what's happening here. We've met so many older sisters through various American Girl books. Like famously, we have Jill in the Molly books. Mm-hmm. We have the relationship that Melody has with her sister, Yvonne. And most recently, we had Julie and her sister's relationship. And there's always this little bit of like either misunderstanding or antagonism kind of mixed with awe. This is the first time that we have really a place where children are being dropped off, where the place is supposed to be the babysitter. And the sister can like truly defect like Julie's sister wanted to do this, but was not able to do it to the same degree. Yeah, I mean, I think basketball kind of served that role in the Julie books where it's like, well, or like Julie working at the environmental center with the disturbing illustration of Julie wearing a little eagle hand on her hand or mouth on her hand. I think there were activities that were sort of like a latchkey kid thing of like, oh, well, you're going to go do this activity that's supposed to be good for you while you're while we're working. So like Julie's either playing basketball, doing a volunteer thing. She's staying after school with this. It's like the arcade serves literally no purpose. Like there's nothing that you can say that's like, well, this she's out there bettering herself. She's playing Mr. Pac-Man like she's fine. It's like there, I mean, not to diss Mr. Pac-Man. I will say that I was upset that it was not Ms. Pac-Man because she was invented in 1982. So it could have worked. I think they had to set up that Courtney wants to see more women in the games and she didn't want the woman to be like a Ms. or a Mrs. because she ends up creating her own character later on. But you would have thought based on the marketing that this was going to be Courtney's entire life. By page six, we're basically out of the mall. And we learn that part of why we're there is Courtney's stepdad is a store owner. And this is where we have the first conversation that gives us, I think, better insight into this family, which is someone asks if these two are sisters. And Tina kind of heartbreakingly in front of Courtney says, we're not real sisters. Courtney's my stepsister. That was a rough moment. That was a rough moment. I also was concerned immediately for the dad because he's described as owning an electronic store in the mall on the third floor. And to me, like, don't you just kind of start doing the math where you're like, basically, if dad owns a radio shack, like he's going to be out of business. What are we thinking? 10, 15 years, 20 The clock is ticking on stepdad, Mr. D'Amico. The clock is going in the favor, though, of Courtney's father. So her mother, Maureen's first husband, who's basically leaving this family and moving three hours away so he can work in a better part of Silicon Valley. I do think if if Mr. D'Amico is kind of an early adopter, 
he'll hopefully invest in whatever Courtney's dad is about and they'll be okay. I'm concerned, though, the dad's going to be like, hey, man, you want to get on the ground floor of the Zune? Yeah. Like, come on, bro. <laughs> and then, like, it's just going to be really bad. Or he'll get, like, overly invested in Y2K and, like, divest and, you know, it, it all goes to hell. I'm not sure. But the dad, her dad, is another absentee dad. Yep. conveniently written out of the books because he needs and the mom actually isn't angry at him like she actually tries to help Courtney sit with it and be like look like everyone needs to take opportunities if it's going to be better for to help like improve your family and that's what he's doing and you know yeah you can't go there every weekend anymore and you won't have your own room over there and but guinea pigs moving in here I guess and I mean what was amazing about the presentation of dad like he shows up literally the day he's leaving Wearing a tracksuit and sneakers. Yep. Okay. Huey Lewis fan. Huey Lewis fan. Get literally is like I burned you a copy of my Huey Lewis tape that I'm gonna like drive on the road. And I was just like, this is screaming like divorced man syndrome where he's just like, I'm out here like searching for the power of love. Like it's it's a lot. This family, we should say we have mom and we have dad, and then we have Mike who notably is Courtney's stepfather, Tina calls mom Maureen. She calls her by her first name. Mm -hmm. We also have a few other adults. We have the news anchors, which we'll get into. Mr. Garcia, who is definitely a role model for Courtney in a lot of ways. We have Justin, who's described as irritating. Sarah, who's Courtney's outspoken best friend. And Kip, who's Courtney's gamer friend. Don't get attached to Kip. You're not going to get a lot of time with him. We're, we're not seeing a lot of Kip. I'm hoping in the next books he shows up a little bit more. Um, I like that the the child villain, um, Justin, is to, we know that he's a villain because he pops his collar. Like, that's the real sign in the 80s that you're bad news. He pops his collar, and I have regrettably, as has the rest of this family, already forgotten about Rafi, who has a very, oh, wow. like, cool name. But this family has invested almost no time in him. He is like very little seen, almost never heard. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that's unfortunate. Maybe in the next books, like he'll be more of a figure. But what I thought was interesting about this family unit, we should also say that Mike's first wife has passed. So like Tina's yes. mom has passed. So it's like a blended family of a widower and Maureen who um, is divorced and seems quite happily divorced. Um, not acrimonious. What's interesting to me about their family unit and what was really telling and I think smart about the author was like, to me, this is like the offshoot of Julie's story of like, what does a feminist like, what does a more like feminist or like open minded gender dynamic marriage household look like? Like, what does it look like when the dad is like, I'm making dinner? Yes. And that's why we were talking a bit before that there are kind of these interesting photographs. And then one of the things that just like absolutely jumped out to me, it felt a lot of times like the illustrations in this book were telling a different story than what was actually happening. And I think the the one that was sort of most egregious to me was the illustration of the father trying to cook dinner. And it was giving Oof. like fumbling... Yeah. Incompetent Disney dad. It's on page 66. He is meant to look sort of ridiculous and out of place. Like he doesn't have the right tools. He doesn't know what he's doing when he's actually put together a pretty good meal and just happened to burn something. 
What really stood out to me is this illustration kind of makes it seem like he's incompetent. He's not in the place where he's supposed to be in. When to what you're saying, every other scene and all of the dialogue in this book points to two working parents and also dad, like who's kind of questionable, but seems to be doing what he can before he drives away and leaves Parsley. Two working parents who made the decision together for Maureen to run for public office. He's extremely mm-hmm. supportive of her career. I don't really know who's watching Rafi, but I'm assuming they're able to afford childcare. And they seem to be very attentive, good parents. And then it's sort of this like ridiculous bumbling moment that doesn't fit with the rest of the book to me. Yeah, it felt really cartoonish because days before this, when they all come home after that trip to the mall and Maureen comes in and is like, I did it. And he's like, did you do it? And she's like, yeah. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? And she was like, I put in my paperwork to run for mayor. And it's like, whoa, mom, like (laughs) that's big. And immediately he pivots into like, this means because we're all a team that we're all going to have to like take on extra roles because like mom is going to be campaigning and whatever. But I like that he presented it as a united front. Like we made this, we had already made this decision together. Like I'm entirely behind her and like I will make sacrifices so that she can do this thing that's really important. And I just really love that. So then you're right. Like you get to this like cartoonish scene where he's wearing her apron, which I'm like, why is it her apron? Couldn't it just be like an apron in the kitchen? Because it does seem like he makes dinner and he ties a towel around his head like Ralph Macchio, Macchio in Karate Kid. And you're like, this just feels like caricature level. Like somebody came in and was like, we need a scene like this in the book. And she was like, "Okay, I guess. You also get the sense that so Courtney and Tina meet up when Courtney is five and Tina is nine and that as a father, he was a really good figure and like important person in Tina's life, even after the passing of his wife. So we know that they've had that relationship to your point about this kind of being an interesting like spin or riff off of the Julie type of story. This book also shows in the 1980s, right, some of the legacies of the work of the 1970s. The environmental movement that Julie is very keen on in the early 70s by now is a lot more established. Like mom is now trying to advance a recycling program rather than just being the only one who recycles. Julie tries to run for office and now mom, it seems a lot more successfully, has this pretty imminent run for office, right? She's Mm -hmm. kind of that next like half generation where it seems like she may actually be really successful in enacting reforms and she wouldn't have been that far off of Julie's age, which is kind of cool. It is kind of cool. I mean, you really do see this as the legacy of what folks like Julie and others were doing. And I mean, it is kind of like sad in a way for us from the perspective of 2024, listening to this and having her be like, the ozone layer, like we got to fix the hole in the ozone layer. And Tina at one point is like, what does that mean? And it's like, we could outlaw outlaw the sale of aerosol cans in the city she was like oh my god i have to like buy my hairspray in another town like that's crazy but it's sort of like that's quaint but at the same time it's like from our space it's like things have gotten a lot worse um or more dire and i'm like damn like i don't know it just sort of like it's the opposite of nostalgia to see how both how different her world is, but also the sexism that Maureen encounters when she decides that she's going to go on air and promote the fact that she's choosing to run for office. The way that Courtney's classmates really kind of mock to some degree her mother's decision. 
Mm-hmm. It made me look up the kind of the history of women mayors. And it's not super surprising that California um, historically tends to have the most women mayors and has had the largest number for a period of time. Um, so they've had 92 women or, or sorry, um, they have had 92 of the 424 women um, that have been mayors, which is a pretty good amount. Yeah, pretty significant. And was a lot of the first mayors like around this time period in California or kind of all over the place? So if you look back into the 1800s before the passing of the 19th Amendment, there were women who became mayors in kind of strange or unusual circumstances, including Mm. a woman in Iowa who was elected as a joke, but then she chose to not take the office. This got me thinking about the history of dog mayors and the way that people have been like more willing to permit animals when it's a rotating office. But um, nonetheless, the first woman mm. who is a, a mayor of a major city was Bertha Knight Landis, and that was also out west in Seattle. It seems like the Midwest and the West historically have had a lot more women. Um Right now, there are over 400 women who serve as mayors. It's still less than 50%, but it's more than it has been. If you look state by state, it did tend to be around this time period or late 20th century when people had their first mayor. So there's kind of Mm. these blips and these flukes in the late 19th century, some early mayors. And then this is really when women start to run for office. This book made me think a lot about a book called Suburban Warriors, which talks about like women and the rise of the new right out in California. Mom doesn't know it, but there's like a huge political revolution that she is part of, almost like a counter revolution to the 70s. And it would have been sort of fascinating to have mom be a conservative, which she probably would have won easier. But I like that she's an interesting person who's pushing for reform, not sort of conservatism, but yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that too, that it's interesting that I wonder if there was any private conversation with an American girl about mom's political leanings, because we'll get into the peak into the past later, but like they're very um, content to just presume the like absolute popularity of Ronald Reagan. So it's interesting that the peak into the past presumes his popularity, but the person who's running for office in the state that he hails from is not someone who espouses those views. People who have done the math on the mileage based on where uh, father Bruce Moore, so based on where Courtney's dad allegedly is going or supposedly is going, this was probably set in Palo Alto, which is like Mm. changing along with like the growing kind of tech boom throughout California. So I think maybe you're supposed to think this is a little bit more of a a liberal or progressive area. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. I could see that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about this book. So, like, we have the the plotline of mom running for mayor, and that intersects with the kind of ongoing plotline of this blended family really, like, blending, which seems like it's not, in particular, between Courtney and Tina. And I thought there's, like, an interesting, like, mother and daughters kind of thing in the book about, like, the mom running for mayor and not, I think, wanting to pull on like her domesticity as like her biggest calling card, but mainly showing it as like, look, I can, you know, multitask. I'm like a very active parent and I'm very committed to my job at the parks and rec department. But um, 
when she gets the opportunity to be on the morning show, that was really interesting. She ends up bringing Courtney and Tina does not come along. And I think some of the tension that kind of brews out of this moment happens later. But we get this line where Courtney ends up confronting her mother with something that either hasn't been noticed or hasn't been really quite as clear to the rest of the family as it is to Courtney, where Courtney talks to her mother and relates this, which is Tina said it's hard to be in this family sometimes. I think that Tina, as the oldest, sees a big difference between herself and Rafi, who's the youngest, and feels that Courtney and her mother are just naturally closer. And she's missing kind of that maternal Mm. figure. Yeah, because I think there's like this implication that even though Maureen seems like incredibly kind to all of her children, including Tina, that Tina's holding back, like, well, there's like a special mother-daughter connection, like biologically, and I'm not part of that. Or, you know, she kind of takes herself out of it. And it seems like a lot of it is about not feeling like she fits into that family unit and still very much like grieving the mom who obviously has passed before the life of the book. The hairspray situation is resolved somewhat because Maureen really tries to make Tina feel special and tries to kind of honor what is special to Tina by calling her the family's hair expert and asking her to go to the salon with Courtney and to kind of have this like girls day out where they get to bond over this. I think there was a lot about this book that felt just very of the 80s without trying too hard. Like basically, Mm -hmm. she's like, you're going to need more hair. Like you're going to need more, more volume, more shoulder pads, more expanse, more caboodle, more heavy makeup if you're ever going to make it in Orange Valley government. Well, I love that mom shows up to the morning show wearing a red power suit, which she calls a power suit with shoulder pads. And, you know, the angles must be extreme because Courtney was like, wow, like, you know, like Courtney notices. And she's like, yeah, this is my power suit. Like, what do you think? And she's like, wow. Um, and Courtney is wearing her Laura Ashley dress. And I love that we get that detail that it was a Laura Ashley dress that she originally wore matching with Tina to get campaign family photos taken. Laura Ashley took me so back in time because I remember getting those catalogs and just being like, whoa, this looks insane. Like to, to, like seeing a full catalog of mothers and daughters wearing matching dresses, which was never a dream I had for myself. And also they are not cheap. No, I think this family is doing pretty well. I think maybe there's a lot going on in that electronic shop and maybe mm-hmm. he really is forward thinking. Like we may have undersold Mr. D'Amico. I think so, because originally I was like, oh, my God, this is a Radio Shack situation, like 911. And then it's like Laura Ashley dresses like, OK. And, you know, mom's also waving around that credit card at the salon. So like we go to the morning show. I don't want to pass over that moment because it's a man and woman anchor who are interviewing all the mayoral candidates. And it's her turn that day. Mom's turn. And last minute decision. They're like, Courtney, do you want to join your mom in the interview? And I think mom panicked, like, oh, God, I don't want that. She doesn't know the talking points. I don't blame her. I mean, Courtney wasn't media trained, like, to put it lightly. (laughs) And she doesn't have the talking points. Like, she doesn't know what's going on. And, you know, basically, Courtney, it's an interesting, like, save the day moment in this book where basically they're trying to, like, gotcha journalism, like, mom about being a parent. And, like, can you both be a mom and be the mayor? Like, how are you possibly going to get it done? And Courtney calls him out. Like, I don't know if the quote right in front of me, but it was it was an iconic moment. 
So Jefferson, who, who is the male colleague, is the one to ask one more question. How will you manage to be both a good mother and a good mayor? But really, I think what's very telling and very accurate of the moment, it's actually the female co-anchor who really gives yes. her a hard time. So we have Sandy coming in and mom has to say that she knows how to juggle responsibilities. But it's Sandy who objects to this. Sure. But Orange Valley has never had a mother as mayor before. What if one of your children is sick when you have to attend an important meeting? And Jefferson kind of ends up conceding the point, but you can tell that Sandy is pissed. Sandy is like, for some reason, like not a woman who supports other women. Like, we don't really know what's going on. Like, maybe the station doesn't cut her any sick days when her kids are sick or like, I don't really know what's happening here, but... It's an interesting move to have like the female anchor be the one who's trying to like get Maureen down being like, well, you can't possibly like be a good mother and be the mayor. And then Courtney is like, hold on a second. And there's a great like AI photo illustration of this moment (laughs) where Courtney has her hands up like, hey, guys, like what's going on? I got to find where she reads. Work with Pleasant Rowland. It's page 58. Who did she? Yeah, she's been she's been changed by some stuff. Um, so then Courtney comes up and is like, if one of us got sick, my mom would still be a good mayor. My stepdad, Mike, would take care of us. Mom works hard and always thinks about what's best for everyone. She cares about making Orange Valley a better place. Um, and then the man is like, wow, that's quite an endorsement. And all the adults laugh. So it's like, it's not the slam that the illustration suggests, but at the same time, it's like, this is beyond precocity that Courtney just like comes out with this and basically makes a very basic point, which is like, there are two parents in the family. One person can cover and, you know, mom is an adult and she can make her own choices. Like it's kind of a wild moment. Like, why is this in this book? I will say this. I don't want to side with, quote, irritating Justin. I don't know that I totally disagree with him when he says, my dad says all politicians are the same. They tell lies to get elected, but then they don't do anything. I don't know that Justin is wrong. I mean, could his dad be from the lips of from the lips of preps? You know what I mean? Like he's popping that pink shirt collar up and. Just dropping like some the facts. the timeline works that his dad is Hank. Wouldn't shock me. Would not shock me. And Hank like moves to the complete other side of the aisle and he's like, listen, like greed is good. Or that disaffected comment could come from a Vietnam vet out of the jewel yes. world. But he just happens to have a preppy son. Yeah, he's a preppy son. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um... Yeah, it's a weird moment for sure. We have not addressed the other major plot in this book, which is not in the description you read earlier, but I think is like really central to the story. And it's another interesting decision, which is that Mr. Garcia, whose fashion icon appears to be Gallagher, just putting it out there, rainbow suspenders, wild looking Hawaiian shirts. He seems very friendly. He has a mullet. Um, he is part of like this real nationwide campaign to follow, um, Krista McCullough into space as part of the Challenger mission. So basically the kids are doing all these assignments about 
you know, their own challenges. Like, what are your dreams? Like, I don't really know how that relates to the challenger other than like maybe being an astronaut is a dream, but it's like, you have to make a presentation on like a dream that you have of like something you want to do. They're all as a group building a challenger model. And then of course they're going to watch the launch live, which it really was nationally broadcast across the country in classrooms. Not a lot of people outside of like school kids saw it live because it wasn't carried by every station, but it was seen live, which seems like somebody should have thought about that. But yeah, it's a big part of this book. I was reading a study that was talking about the long-term effects of children having witnessed this. And they made this really interesting kind of spectrum where they talked about how children who um, lived far um, in certain parts of the country, interestingly, didn't see it happen in the same way that they would have seen it on the East Coast because so Mm. basically children who were from the East Coast who were like fully in school and got to see this happen as it was going on and had a connection or a perceived connection to a teacher from New Hampshire were seen as the ones who had kind of the most intense long-term and traumatic reaction Whereas children who were very far away, school hadn't started for them yet. Some of them were still getting on the bus because of the time difference. This launched at Cape Canaveral. So some children weren't even in school and they were seen as the ones who had less impact overall. Right. That's really interesting about how the time zones change things for kids. Just in case you're not familiar with this moment in American history, on January 28th, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger um, broke apart only 73 seconds into its flight, which killed all seven crew members on board. And it was televised, you know, as part of this teacher in space program, because Krista McAuliffe was the winner of a nationwide competition of all these teachers who wanted to be part of the this program, which would put the first teacher into space where they would teach a lesson to kids nationally um, from, from the space center. And, um, you know, just obviously a hugely tragic moment. And thinking about the longitude of that, like what does that mean for kids who grew up with that? Like that's really interesting. Part of what drove Krista McAuliffe to want to do it was this idea that she could teach science in outer space, as you say. And two astronauts have actually completed all of her lessons. They're called Krista's Lost Lessons. And if you go to nasa.gov slash STEM content, you can actually see them doing what she had intended And this book brought something out that I never really understood, which was that students in thousands of classrooms had been trained not only to get excited about seeing this teacher go into space, but that they would get this follow up, almost like a Mr. Rogers. Mm. We know that Big Bird was on the potential roster to have gone into space. There was this idea that that would be a series. And so people have now since made the videos that she had intended to make but they were going to film her all throughout this journey and then edit those tapes and then have children watch them. So someone like Courtney would have been super invested. I also didn't realize how tight the timeline was. In late January, this happens, and then it's April when we have the explosion at Chernobyl. And then I'm not saying it's related, but that's September, Oprah Winfrey debuts her show. Wow, interesting timeline. So, wow. I mean, I just went down a rabbit hole like that led me from like reading all about the Challenger disaster to like watching Garth Brooks the dance on a loop because obviously the Challenger disaster is memorialized in that music video. But 
it's just like so incredibly sad. And like the studies of that disaster like continued for years and years after. And it's considered by many to be like an important moment in like group think, like the dangers of like group think that no one questioned the management of the prep for the launch that resulted in like not faulty equipment, but basically like someone should have shut it down that day because it was too cold and nobody did because it had already been postponed so many times. And just thinking about that is just really sad. So I was in a training that had nothing to do with this today. It was a training about communication. And one of the speakers was from NASA and he is part of an institute that literally teaches people the mistakes in communication that led to the challenger. And that mm. was so shocking to me because, and it it prompted me to dig more between then and this recording, because honestly, I had always assumed it was a freak accident. And I ended up finding all of these articles, including an NPR article with one of the engineers who warned that this might happen. And there's been some controversy over whether communication really was the primary issue. But we have these quotes from people at Space Flight Center who were basically challenging. These were managers who were challenging the engineers, saying things like, my God, do you want me to launch next April? Like people really just giving them a very hard time. And it's now considered by the federal government an ideal case study in what happens, not just when people don't feel comfortable speaking up, but when they do and they're perceived to be a minority and they are shut down. So that's what my training was about. And this came up as an example, which was even after reading this book, I assumed that this was a completely, you know, unavoidable, couldn't have been prevented. And that's not true. Yeah, I think that's what's so sad about it, honestly. And, you know, I won't get too morbid here, but like the thing that's also really sad is like even in the way that it's written about in the book, you would think that the astronauts perished at the moment of the explosion and they did not they actually were alive for two and a half more minutes as they fell to the ocean and that impact is likely what killed them so it's just really sad that like even as it was happening people were could sense it was a disaster but had no clue what was going on and just imagining like what those poor people dealt with it's just it's awful and you know i read an article where someone was like comparing trying to search for them to like searching for the Titanic submersible people this past year. And it's like, what a completely different situation of like people in a privileged situation doing like tourism versus like a teacher and these astronauts going to space for a variety of like very real reasons. It's just like, it still remains like hugely tragic. There was an education week article about reactions that people had. And I think something that also kind of puts you back in some of the headspace that you see reflected in the Courtney book, there was a person who was asked, you know, how she reacted to it. And she said, this lady was a mother. She had no business going up in this thing. And that wow. was kind of a, a a minority opinion. But what a lot of teachers reported is it was especially traumatic to see one of their own and that some of them just had to like leave their classrooms. They didn't even really know how to react. And it made me think about the first major traumatic event that I saw televised, which was 9-11. And everyone had turned on their TVs in my high school. I had just started high school. And it really like took me back to that moment reading this book. We got an announcement over the intercom to immediately turn it off because we were watching it live. Yeah, I I didn't see the first plane hit, but by the 
time I moved to the next class, they had turned the TV on and it was my US AP history class. And we saw the second plane hit and it was just like, oh my God. And nobody came on and told us to turn it off, but it was like the teachers clearly had no idea what to do. Cause it's like, do you have training for what happens when like a national tragedy is like unfolding during a school day while you're there? I mean, it's just impossible to fathom. Well, I think now it's different well, yeah. in that, you know, I talk to people who are younger than us and they have so routinely been trained in traumatic situations because active shooter has been part right. of their entire life. Right. So right. that there isn't that kind of precedent here. If she had been Mary Ellen's age, she would have had duck and cover drills. Right. You really get the sense that there's kind of this prosperous world that Courtney lives in from the arcade to the mall. Her sister's at the Gap. They're at their father's store. You know, her mother's invested in recycling, which is obviously very important. But we're not in a world of, you know, deep controversy here with Courtney. And then this event, which is pretty much broadcast right to her world, is extremely shocking. It's extremely shocking. And I think it's an interesting pairing of the the Challenger disaster with Courtney's narrative as someone who's set up to us as like a person who's interested in like theoretically like STEM type things. Like she likes video games and thinking about how to build one is her project of something she wants to do. And she ends up like making a video game around a, a character named Krista, um, which is really moving. But it's an interesting also kind of parallel to the real women who were early in the space program, like Sally Ride and and Judith Resnick, who perished um, on the Challenger as well, of like every woman who got involved in the space program was simultaneously trying to do education around like getting girls interested in STEM. How many tampons, though? <laughs> A thousand. One thousand, just in case. One thousand, just in no. case. We don't know. I don't know and how I, many people need. It's great to see her teacher, right, being so active and encouraging. And I think in a way that could come across as really sort of phony or superficial, there's constant conversations in a very casual way. This is really beautifully done in this book about women and women's advancement and feminism all around Courtney what stood out to me, though, after I gave this book kind of like a second read and more thought is the way that Tina is already fully a teenager and Courtney is not. Courtney mm -hmm. is on the cusp. She's what we would call a tween. And we've kind of like buried the lead here in some ways. What also happens in 1986 is the debut of Pleasant Company. Right. And I looked up newspapers in California, and by the fall, it's highly conceivable if she is a newspaper reader like Julie, that she is seeing full page advertisements about Pleasant Company, that she's starting right. to see Molly, Kirsten, and Samantha being advertised in her papers in California, like specifically in this area. And so after kind of thinking about that and the original goals of Pleasant Company, quote, like keeping girls from growing up too soon and reading about almost this revulsion that Pleasant Rowland has for the mall, it really recasts Courtney as this girl who is in a transitional period and Pleasant Company being this intervention of like, don't get jaded, don't grow up too soon, don't be, right. you know, hardened by things in life, but play with the doll. 
Yeah. And I think with that in mind, I think it's a really smart and interesting choice to put her in the arcade. So it's like, okay, she's in the mall technically, but she's not a consumer. Like she's not going to stores. She's not really into shopping. She's into play, the play that's possible within the mall. So she kind of grounds her once again as like, no, she's still a girl. She's still a girl and she still we know that she gets a Molly doll, right? But she's still someone who like conceivably could have interest in this. But also it makes you think, right? I mean, part of what made American Girl so special is that you had to get it from a catalog. Courtney is so inundated with the mall. It's fascinating to think about a 10-year-old born in the 70s already being almost saturated with mall shopping by the time she's 11 and thinking of American Girl as special. Yeah, that is interesting. Like, how does it fit into what other offerings were available via catalog? Or was everything in-person shopping? Or would that have been the thing that's her norm? I was reading articles, you know, from this time, right? And this idea, too, of, you know, the visuals she would have seen on her nightly TV, right? Thinking about Ronald Reagan, but also thinking about the way that people were pummeling each other for Cabbage Patch dolls. And Mm -hmm. Pleasant Company is direct marketing to families like this one saying, you don't need to do all that, right? I'm a teacher. I used to be on TV. Like, you can trust me. And I'm going to direct market this stuff right to your house. Yeah, which is sort of amazing because you kind of wonder, like, what would Maureen think if she got the catalog from the from the mail? Like if she's buying Laura Ashley dresses for the girls, I think she would think nothing of buying a historic, you know, dress like me doll um, or gown dress for Courtney to match her Molly. There's also this point, you know, and this comes up over and over in like the early marketing of it, but an article that would have run like in this fictional place where Courtney is growing up and you see this quote running over and over, but Pleasant Rolland says that she wants toys that will stay dearly loved, that will be put in the attic, right? That will be kept and cherished and passed down over generations. And she says, how many parents put away She-Ra, Princess of Power, and her sword, sword, shields, and comb? She's talking about toys that she finds like Teddy Ruxpin to be sort of Mm -hmm. offensive or ridiculous. And I feel like that's almost kind of a dig bizarrely at this world that we see depicted in the Courtney book where she's already got all this stuff in her bedroom. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which she has all this stuff that she may forget that she has or it has no like special meaning to her. Because I think part of what Pleasant's into is like investing the objects you have like with real value, like sentimentally, but also like to teach you something and to bind you to like generations of people in your family. And like, you know, obviously a very weighty idea. I'm also thinking about her saying that Toys R Us was ugly, like the neon lights of Toys R Us offended her. Like, I think that's a word that she used. And I'm just staring at the cover of this book, which is full of neon light and thinking it's interesting to kind of like have Courtney be the girl that Pleasant like pulls back from the brink. Like we almost lost you to the mall, girl. Like, thank God this catalog got you in time. Well, like Courtney loves Pac-Man. But when you look at the way that American Girl or sorry, then Pleasant Company products are being marketed, Pleasant doesn't seem to really care so much about the girls. She wants the parents, right? She's like she wants the people with the pocket power. And what they're emphasizing is something that lasts, something that's enduring. And 
I was double checking the number that the original prices were like about $65. So like this would be about a $65 doll at a time when a personal computer was over $1,500, which is a lot. And by the time of December 1986, they're telling people more than 15,000 dolls have been manufactured and that number will last only through Christmas. The first printing of 110,000 books sold out in two months. So they're basically saying, like, get in while this is hot, but also very special. Yeah. And I think in a way it's like it's hard to also erase like the same kind of um, hype surrounding the scarcity of supply that also was used to market Cabbage Patch dolls like just a few years previous. So I do think the catalog intervention is very unique to American Girl, like almost entirely. But I think like that's a really effective sales tactic to be like, listen, like there's only like 15K left. Like you better get in now while the getting's good. I love this shade at Teddy where she says, Sure, to get the doll Kirsten in a paperback book will cost you $68, but lots of people spent 80 last year for a talking teddy that likely stopped talking a few months after Christmas. The shade this woman threw at Teddy Rugspin left, right, and center, it's like this. What did Teddy Rugspin do to you? Like, Talk. truly. Well, he talked, but honestly, if you think about it, like, why wasn't she going harder at the Cabbage Patch dolls, which did not come with a book, did not talk, no educational value there? Teddy Ruxpin like talked because he was supposed to like read books to you and stuff. I think Cabbage Patch dolls are beautiful and adorable. Okay. I think they are so cute. They are very special in my family. They were something that my grandmother loved to give to my brother and sister who are both older and are roughly contemporaries of Courtney. I think they are so cute. So they don't need to be educational because they're so adorable. They're babies. Well, mine is like my most treasured doll that I know where it is actually, unlike my American Girl dolls still missing, um, is a Cabbage Patch doll. I have a red-haired Cabbage Patch doll that my grandmother bought me. She's wearing a sweatsuit, very much like one that we both owned. So I'm like, oh, wow. And my grandmother was a redhead. So it just feels like very special because she gave it to me. And a lot of people in my life were like, that's the ugliest doll I've ever seen. And I'm like, you guys don't get it. And that's fine. But I get it. I think they're beautiful. I think they're fascinating. You know, there's a lot going on with reproductive rights right now. And the place where they are birthed is kind of a horrifying situation. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a scary place where they are created. But you if can we watch put them that reborn. aside, mm-hmm. I think they're very cool. Yeah, you kind of have to divorce, divorce the creation narrative from it because it will keep you up nights if you're anything like me. But um, yes, I think they're very they're very cuddly. I think Pleasant was wading in in the 80s into, you know, I think she would have been more of a mindset or of a piece with Sandy, the morning TV show host, than Maureen, because I don't think Pleasant was concerned about recycling, but she was concerned about who was going to raise the kids and what exactly they were going to be exposed to. So even though I think she's progressive, probably on some issues, I think she was part of like the Nancy Reagan, like concerned moms of America group that was like, but what about the children? Like, what if they never learn American history? Like, you know, the D.A.R.E. program, say no to drugs, like all of this stuff that was like putting the parental consent stickers on CDs and cassettes and really trying to just bring awareness around like what kids were exposed to. And which I think like to bring it around to Reagan and to the peak into the past, some have said that he created the teachers in space program 
because he knew that teachers were opposed to his policies. So he thought teachers would like him more if he created the Teachers in Space program. That did not work. That didn't really pan out for him, truthfully, but it was an attempt. But we do get into the peak into the past. Were you scared to start reading the peak into the past about the 80s? How did you feel about it? The word list really scared me. I just want to say the page opposite has words like bogus, dweeb, grody, rad, totally. I don't, I don't really need like totally Tubular. in a glossary about the 1980s. That it was, was a shock. We have a cartoon of the character that Courtney has created. Then we have Courtney with headphones on. We have Reagan and the Cabbage Patch dolls on one page. It, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because it's like, look, I just went through the Challenger disaster again, which not to spoil, it's not a spoiler to the story, but like it is a nice moment that what brings Tina and Courtney together is like Tina can sort of like offer Courtney solace from like a person who has dealt with grief about how to like sit with it. And that's very sweet. But then you get to the peek into the past and it's like, I want to read part of it. I mean, to have to see the presidential portrait of Ronald Reagan with the AI-generated photo of Courtney plus the cabbage. The cabbage patch dolls were honestly like my safe space. I just kept my eyes on them (laughs) because I'm like, I don't know how I'd feel about this. Okay, this is how the inside Courtney's world begins. When Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, lots of Americans were ready for a change. The 1970s had been a decade of challenges and conflicts. The Watergate scandal led to President Richard Nixon's resignation. America's involvement in the Vietnam War deeply divided the country. To many, President Reagan represented a brighter future for the United States. While not everyone agreed with his politics, the majority of Americans approved of his leadership. He made many people proud of their country and eager to move ahead. What was telling about this to me is... It seemed to be kind of like a, a rip of a, a very cursory read of him. And I think there's a time and a place we talk about this all the time about giving us a way to understand a place and a time. But this seems to replicate his campaign messaging as opposed to a reality or a real retrospective on his service. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Like if this was on a Wikipedia page, it would be flagged for like reading like promotional content and they would be like, you need to rewrite this because it's promo. This feels like ripped from the campaign literature of Ronald Reagan and practically inspired by the song lyrics of Proud to be American, where at least I know I'm free by Lee Greenwood, which was also played at Reagan campaign rallies. Like, I just don't think this is actually... I think this is not, I don't want to say dangerous, but this is like so, this is so deceptive in a way that would give you, I think, a false picture of the moment. I will say this too. So I was writing about President Jackson because he was one of the very few presidents to have visited the city I work in. And I was writing a President's Day post and giving context to why he chose to visit these industrial cities. And I wanted to include, by way of a transition, some kind of number of like, and now President Jackson is among the least popular presidents of all time. Like, if I could get some kind of ranking or something. Where this paragraph, I think, is revealing in an unintentional way and similar to President Jackson, he's not. He's actually still among the more popular presidents in the United States. And I think it's sort of confusing general popularity or overall acceptance with virtue 
right? Mm-hmm. I, I completely went yeah. in with this assumption that, well, these people are not popular anymore because people have more information. So they've changed their minds. I was completely wrong. I think that what they right. are asserting is a fact in terms of, right, Reagan promoted himself in this way. And he may still be a person that a good number of people think very fondly of. He's also a person who's rightly faced a lot of criticism and did very serious harm to a number of other Americans. And I think that's what's maybe missing there. Not maybe, is missing there. It is missing there. And, you know, because you think about this timeline, it's like we're fully in the AIDS crisis at the timeline of this book. And that is not mentioned at all in this basically peek into the past section. I'm going to doubt that it's going to be in the next book at all. It is coming. It is coming. It is coming. Okay. well... I'm kind of scared for that, honestly. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, I think there's a problem in our own current culture of like presuming that popularity equals virtue when it comes to politics and its history. And that is definitely not the case. And, you know, Reagan remains popular among a certain segment of the population. But I think that this being a book directed to kids, like this could have been an opportunity to be like, this is what his policies were. Like this was his rhetoric. This was actually what he did. And, you know, I think it would have been fair to say like he absolutely played on people's frustrations with how the seventies went and how people felt really disaffected by and betrayed by their country. So he really artfully wanted to present reasons why people can embrace nationalism again. Um, But in doing that, like, obviously, he was promoting a lot of things that were very harmful. Um, Why is he here? Like, seriously? Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of gets opens a question into why does American Girl feel it needs to be so invested in the national project when actually I think they've also shown in different characters where it's chronologically inappropriate, like the Kaya books, that it's quite capable of telling meaningful stories without kind of a nation frame. So why do we have to talk about who the president is? It makes a lot of sense when Addie Walker learns of the death of President Abraham Lincoln and Mm -hmm. is moved by the ending of the war to claim a birthday. That scene made a lot of sense that regardless of however you think about Abraham Lincoln, that felt like it was relevant and useful for her to know. I think that the inclusion of a sufficient amount of Reagan information is justified in page 109 when they say Reagan appeared on television to talk about the challenger. He spoke directly to America's school children. But as you said previously, it's Tina who heals the way and and her teacher. The actual person who is teaching Courtney Moore are the people who really kind of help her through it. So it's a strange kind of recovery and like rehabilitation project to put Reagan in this flattering light. It's not necessary. Yeah, it felt completely unnecessary and kind of like from nowhere. I thought it would have been more interesting if they'd actually identified popular movies or books or TV shows that had a similar plot line of like, siblings bonding over grief or like a kind of like teaching moment on a family sitcom to be like this was a story that you know played out not only in real people's families in this period but obviously like on these really popular tv shows and like maybe tina and courtney watched them together or something like that and instead it's like here's reagan who's also divorced and then they say today many different types of families are recognized and celebrated I, I did like the direct connection they made to young people reading this, where they say, the trends in new technologies of Courtney's time shape the way we live today. 
Personal computers and cordless phones of the 80s became laptops and smartphones. The women who took on male-dominated roles in the workforce paved the way for greater gender equality for girls and women. I think that wording is really important and you get a lot of agency in terms of how Tina and mom Maureen deal with situations and Mm -hmm. even how Courtney deals with things. And you don't just get a sense that like, well, the times change, like you see them affecting that. And I thought I thought that was a really valuable part of this book. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I thought it would have been interesting if they kind of like broke the fourth wall and talked about the nostalgia of the for the material culture that's in this book, like cassette tapes and mixtapes and arcade video games and all that stuff to kind of be like, you might be an adult reading this book because, or like buying this stuff because you either owned it growing up or, you know, like that, what is the nostalgia for physical objects from the past do? Like, what does it let you do to buy a cassette tape? Like Urban Outfitters is like selling cassette tapes again being bought by people who have no living experience or memory of that being the only technology. And yet that's happening. So I think it would, this being so close, closer to the present, it would be cool if that end section of the book was like, Hey, your parents might remember, you know, X, Y, Z, and it's coming back around again. I think it's shocking given how close together they were published, how, uh, deliberately unselfconscious of the brand and its own history this book is compared to Meet Claudie, <laughs> which is so self-consciously aware of the brand and the way that things yes. ripple and echo back in the brand. And I think part of why we responded to that book so strongly was it was a person who grew up loving Addie Walker saying, this is my opportunity to push all of this forward in a new direction. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about American Girl assuming that this kind of like white middle class culture is the default culture where there isn't that mm-hmm. same need to be as reflective. Absolutely. And I think that's actually what's exactly needed. Like if they were sort of having a, a reflective exercise or a paragraph about like sustainability and like conspicuous consumption and like why does she need all this stuff and like how much stuff do you have and like you know what does that mean to you I think that would actually be really thought-provoking for kids who read the book to kind of think about that I mean it's interesting that the kids in the book think more about environmentalism than kids now are invited to in the back part of this book or the Julie books for that matter do you think because she gets a Molly doll, like that's why she looks so uncanny in the books because she's basically wow. a rip in the Matrix? Yep, 100%. There is something about this book and these photos, it's like haunting me. She's been staring at me the entire time we're recording and I'm like, are you real? Like, just blink. Like, what's happening? She's begging you to ask or to say, hey, Courtney. <gasps> I love that song so much. I'm not even kidding. I have it. I found it on Spotify so I can listen to it whenever I want. It's so good. In this book's opener, she is bested by Mr. Pac-Man. But in the end, she has bested us. Like we are the thing being consumed by her. Space blasted. Little Pac-Man. Yeah. I'm going to say it. Is she Ms. (laughs) Pac-Man? I don't believe that she is because I think Damn that the it. longer journey that we take with her is really her being on a process of self-invention and then creating games. That's what I believe. Okay. I I know there's that. someone that we both follow who does a lot of interesting American Girl stuff who's blaming Felicity for Gamergate. 
I can't contest oh, wow. that. I won't question it. If someone tells me Felicity is responsible for something, I can't help but believe it just by like <laughs> my own makeup. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I overestimated having looking at having looked at the cover of this book when I bought it and I saw Pac-Man on the cover. I was like, OK, I got to find Pac-Man and play it so I can understand what's going on. So I just want to say if you Google Pac-Man, there's like many free opportunities to play online. Oh. And it is addictive. I'm just putting it out there. It's addictive. Turns out that knowledge was not really valuable to me or essential to understanding this book. But you know what? It's really fun. You played it about as much as Courtney played it in this book. That's right. I mean, but I will say this. I've never made the mistake of owning a guinea pig. I have oh. babysat for many people with a guinea pig and the smell alone I'm still haunted by. So... I'm waiting for her to scale up the next time she and Tina have a fight and say, oh, you didn't like living with Parsley? How about my other guinea pig, Sage? How about Rosemary? How about Time? Like she what just I would do full. if I was Courtney and I wanted revenge on Tina and she wronged me, I would be like, hey, Tina, um, just wanted to share this with you. Like um, Parsley is fighting some gingivitis. So like I have <laughs> been using your toothbrush on Parsley. Not just your hairbrush. So just be aware, you know, pick up any symptoms. Just be mindful. Speaking of being mindful, if people want to reach out to you, like if they have tips wow. for, I don't know, the Parsleys in your life, what what do you think? Or if people want to play Pac-Man with you, with us, I don't know. Let's play Pac-Man. I'm very into that. Let's talk about Love is Blind. Let's talk about the 1980s. I, I'm too triggered by guinea pigs. I don't know if I shared this, but I once was babysitting my cousins and like not on my watch, but like the following day, he kept bringing the guinea pigs out of the cage. And I was like, this is not going to happen with me here. Like, we're just not doing this. <laughs> but he was so enamored of this guinea pig. And then I don't know what happened, but like the following day, he took it out of the cage unattended and it got into their HVAC system. And like, I want to take thousands of dollars to repair the system I don't know if the guinea pig made it, but I'm just saying, like, it is not worth it. It is not worth it. Um, but I, so if you want to talk about that, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Allison, if people want to, like, sell you a guinea pig. Yeah, I'll just try to you? balance our scales. I'm a guinea pig lover, 1986. Wow. I met Allison Horrocks at, at all, all the things, including threads, where I don't even know what I'm doing there. But find me. Okay, interesting. Do you think SZA would do a cover of Hey Courtney if yeah. we asked? If we asked, no. But <sighs> Okay, maybe someone if, else. If actual Courtney did, yeah. I want to make an album that's just artists covering Hey Courtney. That's it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. If people want to work on that with us, follow us on the show at what is our handle? We have a website, Dolls of Our Lives Podcast, and you can follow us at Dolls Lives Pod on X as well as on Instagram. That's where you'll find us most of the time. So yeah, reach out. And we will see you on our next episode. More Courtney coming your way.